Good morning, City Light. <laughs> I'm Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I don't know if you were with us last week, but last week was an incredible weekend, was it not? Uh, yeah, it's awesome. Uh, we got to hear people's story of how Jesus has come into their life, changed it forever, and brought them from death to life. We also got to hear tw- uh, see 28 people get baptized. Like, hallelujah, that we would see God's grace in such a way, that we would see that God is at work. And it was an amazing thing, right? Like, I mean, to get to see the evidence of what we've prayed for as a church, right? The evidence that we've prayed to Jesus and he's brought people uh, into his family, into our family here is just a, an incredible opportunity. And so it, it matters because we as a church, we, we don't want to just be another Christian bubble, Like, we want to see Jesus go into the lost, those who are seeking God's grace, those who are longing for Jesus. And so when we get to see those people get baptized, hear those stories be told, we get to see evidence that, man, our God is most definitely at work. Amen? And so uh, this week, we're going to continue our journey uh, through the gospel of John. And and John's gospel, its its aim is to basically take Jesus and make him more clear to us, make him more tangible, like— so that we might believe in him, but believe that he's the son of God, but that he's also at work today. Um, he, we, want, we want to look at this text and see the fact that, hey, we not only get salvation in Jesus, but we also get the gospel in our daily lives as well. And so as we walk through, that's what we're going to see is that we get true life every single day through the person and work of Jesus and his grace. And so I want you to open your Bibles to chapter 5. Uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 19. Uh, but before we get there, I want to give a little bit of context. So my little friend sh- shared a short story uh, about a guy getting healed last week. You remember that? Austin did that for us. Uh, super helpful. Uh, <laughs> so Jesus comes in and heals a lame man uh, who had been lame for 38 years, right? So he comes in, he heals the guy. What we didn't hear last week is that he did it on the Sabbath. So For Jews at that time to do something like that on the Sabbath was a a, a no-no. They were like, "Uh uh-uh, I can't believe you just did that. Um, Because they obeyed God's command. God's command said, hey, you will set apart the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And so what they did is they took a bunch of, took that command and took a bunch of rules and regulations and put them on top of it. So they did not just work, but it was also seen as a bad thing for you to go and heal somebody on a Sunday or on a, or for Saturday for, in their case, but on the Sabbath day. And so it was just, a, it was a no-no. They were angry at Jesus for that. And then Jesus, like he does several times throughout this particular gospel, he decides to say, okay, you're angry, you're hot, you're fire. I'm going to take gasoline and just throw it on there. So here's what he did in verse 16. He says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, because they essentially viewed him as breaking the Sabbath. But then Jesus says to them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Now you're sitting there like, okay, so why is that offensive? Uh, The reason why is because Jesus called God Father. It would would have been an absurd thing for someone to call God Father, because if you were going to call God Father, that means you're saying that you're equal with God. And so for the Jews, they called that blasphemy. It was like the worst crime that you could commit within their faith, within their culture, within their people. And so Jesus, to say, hey, God is my father and I'm doing work like him, was blasphemy. Now, in our day, if somebody said, hey, I'm God, well, we'd, be a little, we'd think that person a little sketchy and kind of like say, let's keep your distance because you're weird. But in their day, the penalty for blasphemy was death. 
And so what we actually see later on in Jesus' life is that that's one of the contributing factors, humanly speaking, as to why Jesus was crucified, because he did, in fact, say, hey, I am God. He committed, in their sight, blasphemy. And so what we're going to look at today is the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And, and I think that, if, if we're honest, we try to skip over that sometimes, because it's kind of a confusing thing, it's complicated, and so we kind of just jump over those realities in the Bible and I just want to let you know, City Light's not that way. Like, at City Light, we care about our Bibles. We care about theology. We want to see God more clearly so we can't just hop over the things that are difficult to understand. And so what we want to do today is we want to illuminate and take those things and, and teach those things so that we can have a deeper understanding of God. If you open your Bible and you just jump over the things that are complicated or hard, well, you're missing a good portion of your Bible at that point. And we don't want to miss that because the Bible's about God and we want to know God. And so we're not going to skip over that today. We're going to talk about it. And my hope is that we take this very good and bold truth and, and make it something that we can understand and honestly see Jesus more clearly because of it. Amen? And so my first point this morning is um, that Jesus submits to the Father. So remember, he, he made them angry, but now he's going to state his case as to why what he's saying is true. And so the first point is Jesus submits to the Father in his authority. We're going to pick it up in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. And so what we see here is that Jesus submits to the Father. Now, Jesus is explaining to them, saying, Hey, I understand that you're angry right now, but I see the Father at work. And then so therefore, I'm also doing what the Father's doing. So he's imitating God the Father is what he's doing. So that's what kids would do even in his time period. So when you turn 12, as far as Jewish culture is concerned, you start an apprenticeship uh, process with your dad. So whatever your dad did for business, if he sold cars, if he, if he was a carpenter, or whatever he might do, you're going to walk with your father for a whole year and just watch what he does, participate in it. So it's like show and then you go and do it. And after those 12 months are over, when you turn 13, you're technically ushered into being a man. And when you're a man, you get to do that same work or the same business that your dad is a part of as a partner. And so you start to work with your dad from that point forward. And so Jesus actually participated in this particular cultural thing. Uh, so when he was 12 years old, in Luke 2, it gives the only account outside of Jesus' birth of his childhood. And so it was a common custom for his family to go up to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover feast, okay? And so that's, what, that's where we get ourselves in Luke 2, and here's what it says. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, so Jesus' family returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And so what happened was his parents brought him up to Jerusalem, they went to the party, had fun, celebrated the Passover, and then as they were leaving, they left Jesus because Jesus went wandering. And so they left Jesus, and for four days, Jesus ended up in the temple, and he's learning from the teachers of the law, and that he's also preaching those truths. Like, they're marveling at what he understands at the age of 12, and yet his parents, four days later, are like, where'd Jesus go? 
Like, where's he at? And so they head back to Jerusalem, and, and it says in the passage, which I think is funny, it says, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. I'm not sure that's the word I would put there if your boy's been missing for four days, is astonished. Um, they might have been astonished, like, why would you disobey in that way? Why are you going off being crazy with the Jewish people? I don't know. But here's what Mary said to him. She said, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus being who he is, he's very pointed. Here's what he says. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And so he's telling his mama, hey, you remember that angel that talked to you before when I was born? Yeah, I'm still the Messiah. That hasn't changed. I'm growing up. I'm in my father's house. You should have known that. And then he's telling the Jews right here, right now, is saying, hey, I can see my dad and I'm doing exactly what he's doing. I am the father's son, and that's what you're seeing taking place here. So I have a kid. His name is Uriah. Uh, He's one of my four, and he's just like Jesus in this uh, to an extent. Uh, Not as holy, obviously, but uh, (laughs) he's three years old, but he loves to do what daddy does. So he, one of his favorite things is when he sees daddy working. And what he means by that is anything that has to do with tools, wood, and putting things together. So that's, that's working for him. And so every single summer and spring, I'm always working on something. I don't know what it is, but this particular last summer, um, I was helping to repair um, my dog's kennel. So I, my dog's name is Romeo. He's a 75-pound German shepherd and has broken literally every kennel we've ever purchased for him. Like, I kid you not, I'm talking the ones that are like this. They have the door on there. He busts the door open. Doesn't matter. If it's the, the crate kind that's all metal, yep, metal, he busts it right off of that thing. And then we have a galvanized steel outdoor, like, gated to kennel for him, and somehow, some way, he pushes his way through and makes a hole about that big and squeezes his big behind through that. So I don't know how he does it. He's psychotic. That's just the way that works, okay? So every year, I'm repairing that thing. And so Uriah and I, last summer, were repairing it. So we got wood out and that sort of thing, because hopefully wood will hold up the, ste- the test of the dog. But so we start building it. I'm having him hold pieces while I screw them in and screw them tight to each other. And then uh, I'm trying to explain to him, hey, here's what the process looks like. This is what we're doing. And then I get a phone call. So as I get the phone call, I, I step back and I'm watching Uriah. I'm talking on the phone. I think it's probably Austin, but uh, him and I talk like every day. It's weird. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> so I'm talking on the phone and then I see Uriah bends over, grabs the screw gun, grabs a couple screws, puts the screw up against the wood. And sure enough, takes the screw gun and goes, screws the screw all the way in. And then he takes the next one and puts it next to it. He takes the screw gun and goes, screws it all the way in. And I'm telling you, dude did not read a book. He can't read. So he, he doesn't know how to do it based on reading a book. He didn't ask me permission because I was sitting there watching him. And I showed him how to do it. And so my son Uriah was only doing what he saw his father doing. And that's what Jesus explained to them. Hey, I'm imitating the Father. Now, City Light, did you know this? That's yours and my call as well, is to imitate the Father. Ephesians 5, uh, 1 through 2, put, uh, it's going to be on the screen. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Think about it this way. When God speaks of Jesus saying, He is my beloved son. He says that about you too. 
He says that about me, that we are his beloved children. And so as our father, like we talked about, when you're born again, you come into God's family. And so God becomes your father. We can watch our dad. We can watch our father at work and imitate him. We can see his goodness, his love, his joy, his compassion, his holiness on display. And we can imitate that. And we can open up our Bibles and we can see how the person of Jesus responds to the Father. And we can actually see even more clearly what it would look like to imitate our Father. Amen? We can do that because we are children of the living God. And then Jesus continues to make his case for why he can say, hey, God is my Father. And so verse 20 through 22, here's what he says. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus explains that his Father not only lets him watch what he's doing and lets him participate, but he lets him be an integral part of the story. He lets him be an integral part of the story. So when we were in chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, we got to see that on display, right? So we got to see that at the beginning of time, when everything was created, Jesus was present there. And not only was he present there, he was the power by which God used to create everything. Everything that is created on heaven and on earth was made through and for Jesus Christ. And so we get to see that the Father wants Jesus and uses Jesus to be a part of everything that he's doing. So he sets a plan, but he allows Jesus to see that plan through. Amen? And he goes even further in verse 39. In our text today even, it says, You search the scriptures, talking to the Jews, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, being the scriptures... That bear witness about me. And so here's what he's saying to him. He's saying, hey, you can memorize all the Bible verses you want. You can study your Bible like nobody else. But unless you see me in them, it doesn't matter. You got to see Jesus because the Bible is about Jesus. So God the Father is so intimately in love with the Son that he uses the Son to fulfill his plan. He makes him the center of everything. And they thought that him healing a lame man was something miraculous. And as Jesus all, often does, he, he says, I'm going to wow you even more. I'm going to do even greater things. And so some commentators would say that he's referring to what he's about to do in chapter 11. In the fact that there's a guy who dies. And after he's been dead for four days, Jesus resurrects him. He comes back to life. And then even further than that, you see the end of Jesus' life here on earth. He dies, and then he resurrects. That's the linchpin of Christianity right there. Like the greater things that he's talking about is this resurrection. Without the resurrection, our faith doesn't count. It doesn't fulfill anything. Here's what Paul says about it, 1 Corinthians 15. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. So without the resurrection, none of this matters. We need Jesus' resurrection for that to happen. God the Father made him the focal point of all of creation, the Bible, history, and life as well. So although Jesus did these miraculous works, he was still in submission to the Father, and he was doing exactly what was according to the Father's plan. 
And then he goes a step further and wants to continue to flesh that out for us in verse 23 and 24. That all my, sorry, that all may honor the Son just as they honor, they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. You cannot know the Father apart from the Son. See, this section here, this particular place, has such a value, such an implication on all of us in the room. Because he's saying there isn't a middle ground. There's no neutrality. What that, what that means is, even though there are times where we might say, man, I know God, but Jesus I'm unsure about. Or we might see a friend and say, man, my friend knows God. He's religious. He does different activities, but he doesn't really have a relationship with Jesus. What Jesus says is that, no, no, no. Listen, you can go to church. You can read your Bible. You can pray as much as you want. You can sing songs of worship. You can even know about God and still end up in hell for eternity. That is reality. You see, the whole point is the Son. You can't know the Father apart from the Son. A knowledge of the existence of a God is not enough. You need the Son to show you the Father. That's what he's saying here. There is no middle ground. In verse 23, John shows us that the only way to God is through the Son. So believing that there is a God is not enough to save our souls. You must put your faith in the Son of God, and only that can actually give you eternal life. And then when Jesus says truly, truly in verse 24 here, that's a, that's a key thing because he says truly, truly a lot, but here's what he's saying. So another word that you can use is amen and amen. So when you hear amen, truly, truly is kind of the same thing there. But what he's saying is everything that follows after this, after, what I, after I say truly, truly, is uncontradictable. Meaning, you can't contradict it. There is no contradiction to it. It is true and complete and utter truth. And so when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes me or him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but pass from death to life. What he's saying here is this is completely and utterly true, that if you put your faith in the Son of God, hell is not an option for you. That's true. He's saying there is no contradiction in it. And so Jesus submits to the Father, but he's called us to believe in the Son. Amen? Which leads me to my second point in Jesus' conversation with the Jews. My second point is Jesus is also equal with the Father. Jesus is equal with the Father and has his own authority. We're going to pick it up in verse 25. It says, truly, truly, there it is again. I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And so when, it says that, when I say that Jesus has authority, he has authority to give life. So, so just a minute ago I said, if you do a bunch of spiritual things, that's not going to save your soul. 
I didn't say that to condemn you, but to show you good news. Good news that there's an opportunity here, right? I don't want you to walk through your life wasting your time believing that a knowledge of some ambiguous God was enough to get you there. I don't want you there. I want you to understand that only through the person and work of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for your sins and raising from the grave can you actually have true life here and now. Apart from him, we're dead. Ephesians 2.1 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Translation, apart from Jesus, you cannot know God. And I want us to see this, though. The Son has authority to give life, okay? That's his authority. He wants to give life. And so when, when you say authority, essentially what that means, it indicates that you have dominion or you have a right over something because you're the founder of it. Like, it's yours. And so I as you're sitting here, you're probably thinking, okay, I get it, okay? Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He raised from the grave, so now I get to go to heaven, right? Like, that, that's the gist of what I'm getting out here. However, I think there's, there's a component that we walk through our daily lives and kind of miss. I've been reading a book uh, called Gospel Fluency by a guy named Je- Jeff Vanderstilt, and, and I, I started reading it actually just this week, and as I was reading it, He said that I'm an unbeliever. He said that he himself is an unbeliever, which really confused me and made me want to just kind of put the book down and slide it to the side because I'm like, why are you talking about the gospel then? It doesn't make any sense. But he he continued to explain. I gave him a shot because he is a pastor in California. But uh, he, uh, he started to tell me that he started to talk about in his book that, yes, I believe the Son of God by his death, burial, and resurrection it has the power and has given me true life and save me from death. He's like, I get that. I believe that. But what he also says, but in the everyday workings of his life, he doesn't always function in a way that shows he believes it. He doesn't always live in such a way that shows that he believes it. And so I want to make this really practical today if we can. I think if we're honest, that's us, right? Like we, we have the faith to believe that, yes, once I die, I get to be with Jesus. That's my faith. Like the death, burial, and resurrection, yep, I got it. Salvation, we're good. But in the inner workings of the day-to-day, moment-by-moment parts of our life, we don't necessarily believe that the gospel is sustainable for it, that it's not relevant for our day-to-day. Or we, we even have just some of a, a belief that the gospel itself is only sufficient for those times where I'm at the lowest of lows and desperate. Amen? But I want you to know that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, his life that he gives, the authority that he gives in life, is not just life after death, but life here and now. He wants to write a new story for you. He doesn't want to just give you a ticket to heaven. He wants to be the source of life, joy, security, wisdom. He wants to be that for you. He wants you to Have him in your story as you walk day by day. He wants to be the king of your life. So you got to ask yourself the question, will you let him rule and reign and have authority over you today? Will you let him have rule and reign and authority over your life tomorrow? Will you let him inform how you parent your kids? Will you let Jesus inform how you interact with your fellow co-workers or fellow students or your neighbors? Will you let him into the most intimate details of your life and show you how your heart can love like Jesus loves? Now, because if we follow Jesus, if we have Jesus in us, if he has caused us to move from death to life, like I said earlier, 
we get to call God Father just like him. And if we are, we're sons and daughters of the living God. And so we have to ask the question, will you let the Father be your Father? Because here's what he wants from you. Here's what he wants from you. He wants in those moments or in those days when the day has just not gone the way you thought it should. When everything is flipped upside down, when things are just down and out and difficult because the kids are going crazy, because work didn't go well, this guy said something terrible to me, I feel insecure, whatever it might be, he wants you to say, Dad, help me. I need you right here in this moment, in the next one, in the next one, in the next one. Dad, please help me. Help me know how to respond to the toil of life. But then he also wants you to come to him in the days of victory, in the days of triumph, and say, Dad, thank you so much. Thank you for such a good day. Thank you for giving me joy. Thank you for marriage. Thank you for this new baby. Thank you for this new family. Thank you for healing my mom. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me the grace to experience true and other joy. Thank you, Dad. You see, the Son is equal with God the Father and has the power and the authority to give you life today, not just after this life. Now, he's also equal because the son also has the authority to judge, verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, you might have been surprised by the fact that it just said that Jesus is a judge. He is. He's a judge. And there's a moment in history when Jesus returns to earth and he will judge. And in that judgment, he will base it on, as verse 29 says, on what you've done. Now, let me clarify some things with that. Your belief in, in information about Jesus can be extremely superficial and dangerous when it comes to this. See, when he says what you've done, he's actually not referring to your works. Okay, don't think that I'm trying to erase everything that we've done for the last five weeks. Okay, you can't get there by your works. I promise you that. You can't work hard enough. You can't be good enough. It's through the person and work of Jesus. However... So here's the question then. Let, let's just answer the question real quick. Is belief in Jesus enough to save your soul? Yes, absolutely. No question about it. However, it's not about your works or, or how much you do. However, your belief should have an overflowing amount of works that are response to, but also even just an outflow of what you believe. So let's... Let's keep it there and, and just know that we're not teaching a different message here. But what we are saying is that, man, you being saved by God's grace should have a reflection in your life day to day, and it should look like it. And what Jesus is giving us here is good news. He's saying, not only am I going to resurrect, but you are too. So Jesus wasn't the last person to be resurrected. It's going to happen again. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus returns, he will make all things new. All things, our bodies, all of creation will be new. All things will be made better. And for humanity, it means a resurrection. And for those who have trusted in Jesus, it's the resurrection of life. For those who didn't, not. Eternal death.
So if you have not placed your faith in Jesus, yes, he is saying that you will head to the resurrection of death. Now, you're like, man, I thought they were about good news. That doesn't sound like good news. <laughs> but I want to give you a glimpse into this good news. Because there is incredible news that he's given us here about the resurrection. So, if you have placed your faith in Jesus and you resurrect to the resurrection of life, when things are made new, what it means when God says, I'm going to make all things new. So Jesus' prayer, for instance, was, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Translation, what he's saying is, I want heaven to come to earth. I want earth to resemble heaven. In the Garden of Eden, that's what we see. In Genesis 1, when you see the Garden of Eden, a husband and a wife walking around naked, eating food and enjoying themselves in the presence of God, that was the intention. That's heaven meets earth in a very clear depiction. But then sin comes into play and separates those two. And so what God is saying here is like, hey, I want to bring that back. I want to make all things new and put it right back the way it should be. Funny thing, that was the beginning of the book, the end of the book in Revelation if you look at it, it actually doesn't say that we go up to heaven, but that heaven comes down to us. That's the beautiful picture. That's the good news that he's giving us. Uh, a theologian had put it this way. He says, heaven is great, but it's not the end of the world. What we are interested in is life after life after death. We want to experience true life. And it's good news that our Jesus, our God, is in the business of redeeming all of creation back to himself. Our hope is the resurrected Jesus for his resurrection also means our resurrection as well. Now, let me describe this a little bit to you so you can get a picture of it. So my boy, he was saying he was hoping about the height thing last week. He could be taller, but I don't think it'll matter. I think he'll still be at a dunk with his resurrected body. Like, it's a new thing for him. He can get up, okay? No boosting him up anymore. Like, he'll be there. That's the resurrected state. That's the new heavens, new earth. The new heavens, new earth, on a serious note, though, means no sickness. It means no cancer. It means no pain, no suffering, it means if you can't walk now, you'll be able to run then. It means that any hurt or pain that you might be experiencing in the present is done away with. It's no longer there. There's no death. So we don't have to look our family members in the eye knowing that someday that we'll part because we'll be together forever. And then most importantly, we will actually get to see face-to-face our God, our King, our Savior, Jesus. That is the good news that comes from that resurrection. And here's how Revelation actually describes it in chapter 22. So the last chapter of the Bible, it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And so it's not just heaven, but it's heaven meets earth in this beautiful picture of us dwelling with the living God. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a better picture of eternity and life after this than hanging out on some clouds, playing some hearts with some angel wings. 
I'm just saying, that sounds boring to me. This ain't boring, okay? Like, I don't want to go there necessarily. Like, I mean, I know there's alternatives, but the, the, the cherubs, and I, that's just not me. I, I don't know about you. I want to be able to still dunk in heaven. So anyway, it's, a, it's better news that that's not our picture of heaven, but our picture of heaven is much greater than that on any given day. So Jesus submits to the Father. He knows the plan of the Father. He imitates him, and he actually completes the Father's plan himself. He's equal with the Father, meaning he himself is, in fact, God and has authority to give life and to give judgment as well. There is a heaven, there is a hell, and Jesus has taken that punishment for you and for me so that we don't have to perish in hell. That's good news. And so we can have eternal life simply by believing in him. And it doesn't get better than that, by the way. It doesn't get better than that. I heard a, a guy say this once, and, and I believe it's probably a good illustration of my thought process is, if I'm wrong about what I'm saying here, I'm only wasting this life. Not that big of a deal, right? I'm having fun. But if you're wrong, and you don't believe this to be true, you waste all of eternity. That's the reality that we're facing with this text. Not working harder, not making enough to buy your ticket to heaven, not fixing yourself up, but we get eternity through the person and work of Jesus. And if you place your faith in him, that's good news for the next 60 years. That's good news that you can share with other people. There are people out there who desperately need it. So if you get cancer, for instance, and you're healed from that cancer, how many people you think you're going to tell? Right? So I just told you that you're going to have a resurrected body with a living God for all of eternity and get to have fun in heaven and work and, and play and dunk. And there will be no pain. There will be no suffering. There will be no worrying. That's the best news I've ever heard in my life. Wouldn't I want to share that with other people? We have 60 years to show and share that same message with other people. And so if you've trusted him, please don't waste your gift. Let other people's ears hear that same message that can free them from the bondage of sin and death. Now, as we said, there is an end time coming. But until that day, Jesus has work to do in yours and my heart. Amen? He wants to work with us day after day after day. He wants to be present and influencing us in the moment by moment, not only decisions, but even just how we respond to life. And so we have to continue to cling to what he's accomplished on the cross. And so in an effort to do that, we have a symbol that he's left us. It's called communion, where he gives us a symbol of his body broken and his blood shed for us so that we might live in true life, not just after death, but in this particular life as well. And so we will take the bread, which is his body broken for us. We will dip it in the juice, which is his blood shed for us, and we'll consume it as an acknowledgement, man, Jesus has saved my soul, and I can now walk in life. Amen? The only way we can get to the Father is through the Son, and through the Son we are given true life. Let's pray.